I'm looking to do a deal for an AK-47 with a 75 round drum, a couple Glocks, and a little less than an ounce of crystal meth. So we're in the shade trailer. I met one of the guys. He goes in the back, and the deal is supposed to be at least about like $3,000 for all the stuff I'm looking for. And he says, the guys are in the trailer, but I can see around that there's people still coming in through the other side. But he doesn't know I can see that. So my instincts tells me, if I go in there and with the money, I think it's gonna be a rip or they're gonna do something to me. I said, no, I think I'm gonna stay in the car. And he said, oh, give me the money and I'll get it. I said, no, I'm not doing that either. I said, I'm not doing that. I said, you got five minutes. You told me the stuff was already here. I'm gonna wait in the car. And if not, I'm out. And five minutes later, minivan shows up, Odyssey shows up with a guy that has an AK-47 with a drum and he sells it to me, I gave him the cash and uh, the other Glocks he had in his backpack. So that tells me there's something gonna go on there, which was like, mm-mm. And then it gives me the crystal meth too. And I said, hey dude, next time, I don't wanna meet anybody else. We're gonna do the deal, you have it already set up, and I'm done. And he understood that. When a man enters the world of illegal arms and narcotics trafficking, he knowingly faces the possibility, if not probability, of subjecting himself to being robbed beaten, or worse. And as the consequences of his fast money enterprise generally lead to shattered families, lives, and souls, it's understandable to dismiss the man in this situation as just another scumbag that frankly gets what he gets. But there's another kind of man, one who faces the same dangers, not for money, not for power, but to protect the very people that this enterprise endangers. This is the extraordinary story of ATF agent Ignacio Esteban. Oh, man, that's a good way to learn early. I learned early, yeah. But not that I never did anything wrong, but I remember when my buddies were getting out of jail and I'm like, oh my God, that seems like a million years ago. You know, it was a whole different life and they've been sitting in a can the whole time. Uh, I couldn't yeah. I couldn't imagine it. That, I think that alone should scare people straight. I mean, that's just one thing I found interesting. I've seen it before other people, and I've been in these situations, but just listening to William Steele, listening to Bill Stacks, listening to Gunner, and listening to tell their stories, and I said, man, that's chunks of your life that's gone. I couldn't imagine that. Bill Steele, 18 years. 18 years, yeah. Gunner did a bank robbery time for 13 years. 13? That's an insane amount of money. And you know, when I talk to some of these guys, you know, Never. Bill says, well, Steele, that there was just nothing violent. It was just stealing stuff. Yeah, high end. And, and, and Las Olas, and, and some high end areas in Fort Lauderdale, big clients. I mean, yeah, he was a burglar. Yeah. But what's worth 18 years of your life? What's worth a year of your life? That one day, right? Yeah, I mean, I've had a few days. I've had yeah, don't do it, man. That's why I think it's important for people to go to these prisons, go to these programs, and see how messed up and it smells in there. The food is horrible. And, and I wrote books about this. You deal with the wrong gangs, MS-13, Miami, Mexican Mafia, prison gangs. These guys are killers, especially if you're not in that group and you're not a strong fighter. Bad things happen. Bad things happen. When I think of undercover law enforcement agents, my mind always goes back to the 1992 Quentin Tarantino classic, Reservoir Dogs where the undercover Mr. Orange lies dying in a pool of his own blood, having made the ultimate sacrifice. A policeman muses that you gotta have rocks in your head to be an undercover. It's a quote to which I've often referred, and agreed with, but erroneously. An undercover agent has to be highly intelligent, with razor-sharp instincts, and driven by a sense of duty and purpose that most of us will never truly understand. 
It's my hope to take you deeper into the life of such an agent, not merely depicting the events as they unfold, but to understand the true nature and personal struggles of a man who's earned the moniker. Undercover is very dangerous. You're right there with them. The Urban Dictionary has defined a term to describe the process of making a person extraordinary. The DC sniper goes only a year on the job. Traumatic trial by fire that will define not only their future, the essence of who and what they are to become. You develop good instincts because if you don't, you won't be doing it much. That's for sure. I'm William Cross. This is Extraordination. My name is Ignacio J. Esteban born June 12, 1971. My families came in the early 1960s. That's when the revolution of Fidel Castro and these guys took over on January 1st, 59, and it deteriorated pretty fast, especially with Castro and the mob. You know, things go bad fast, and either you're part of the communist regime, if you're not, either you have to leave, you get incarcerated, or you get executed. It's a different kind of immigration group that came in the 60s that, uh, you know, people think of Scarface, right, and the 80s, and you know, all that as a whole different situation. It was the most educated, the most powerful, the most money. You had to leave because he's there to take everything away. If you could leave, you have the resources and the means, you left. And that's what they did. It was pretty much a brain drain for Cuba. And of course, it was a huge bonanza for South Florida and for the United States. It transformed Miami into a cosmopolitan city that's now uh, a huge success. It was a sleepy town. It was changed within like 20, 30 years. And that's something I saw. Even though we were born in California and Los Angeles, after the mid-70s, they came over to Florida with more family. And I think it was more friendly, especially if your background is Cuban-American, obviously. The situation I was growing up, I had my parents, my younger sister, five years younger than me. My dad was an engineer for Bertram Yachts. He engineered boats. My mom worked in the airline industry as a finance supervisor. They were hardworking people. English was spoken as a primary language. Uh, my grandparents were around. I spoke a lot of Spanish with them because they would spend a lot of time with us also. I would spend time with my grandfather a lot, who was an artist, a painter. He was retired. So he loved painting. They were beautiful landscape, oil paintings, flowers, things that he could look at from his house where he was. It was in Hollandale Beach, Florida. It was a good way for him to escape the pressures and what happened to him. It's hard when you lost your homeland and the way they did. And America is a great nation to accept the Cuban exiles to come in here. And I was fortunate enough to be raised in this great country of ours and enjoy the freedoms. But it's very easily you can lose them and he saw firsthand how quickly, and he, and he was a very successful person in Cuba. And to go from being a politician himself, very anti-Castro, to leaving the country and coming here, and he didn't speak much English. He worked whatever jobs he could to support his two daughters, a uh, very difficult situation. So I felt very proud to be with him, and he would sell his artwork at the local malls. Let's say he was in the South Florida area in Hollywood, Hondale Beach, and they were very popular, the art shows. So I helped him package all the paintings in this small vehicle. It was like a V8 he had. And we would go to the mall. The school hadn't started. So he would teach me a lot. And I would also practice a lot of Spanish and help talk to people who were big fans of him. I have a lot of his artwork in my house and other family members. And I even did a book, an homage to those paintings in my grandfather's paintings, one of the books that I have on Amazon, which is very touching. And I still have one of his signs that he would hang up at the art station that had his name on it that he painted. So that was part of my culture growing up in South Florida. And that's something I'll always remember. 
Politics was a big part of our family, obviously, especially my grandfather and, and my father, too, because he left Cuba when he was just out of high school. So that's tough for a young man to lose his country also. And again, come to the United States, he joined the Navy for uh, about two and a half years. And then he started studying more background engineering. But those are things that make an impression on you, how fragile democracies are. And, and Cuba had its own constitution. It had been around and uh, how quickly the wrong people can take that and suspend it. You know, when your constitution gets suspended, you know, bad things happen. So all that, I think, helped mold the person I am. Obviously, I'm you know, very conservative, and that has an impact where you can see where the extremes are extremely dangerous in growing up. So I was raised in Miami, and fortunate enough, they believe in education, and I did the same thing with my children. They, you know, sent me to Catholic schools, which I think is important too, and that had a big influence on who I would become. Miami is one of those cities you see people who speak both languages because of the schooling system and the parenting, which will come in very handy for me later in my career in law enforcement. Uh, I went to high school uh, in a Catholic high school, Christopher Columbus High School in Miami. It's an all-boys Marist High School. Very strict, very tough, tough school, which I think was really good. So it's it's a good school, very athletic. I was also big into sports. I was big into running, swimming, tennis. I played all four years. I lettered in tennis, and I had good grades. But I had a passion for history, civics. I just really enjoyed it and took to it. And that would have an influence on me when I go to college at St. Louis University, another Catholic university, but north of Tampa in Florida. I would major in history and political science because I really had a passion for both of them, really good at it. And that would also influence me later with my books and my politics. <laughs> I would play sports at a tennis scholarship in college, played number one for the university. I had a half scholarship for tennis. I started playing at a young age, when I was seven or eight. I played junior tournaments, then I went to high school, we were state champions, also we were district champions, and, and then in college I would play number one singles, number one doubles. It took a lot of my time, but it's still a lot of discipline, because I like to win. And Florida is very competitive for tennis, like golf and tennis are up there, you know, because it's, the weather is so good all year round, we don't have to play indoors, we play outdoors. In Miami and Florida, very hot conditions, very muggy conditions, so you also have to do in shape a lot, so do a lot of running, cross country, swimming anything I could to give me that edge to win these matches because a lot of the players will be very good and players from Florida as you know a lot of them all the academies turn professional and become superstars so Florida has a mega talent so it was very tough and if I was to win I had to really take it so that showed me early if you want to be successful what it takes to be successful that was my first passion really I wanted to play professional tennis. I wanted to be like another John McEnroe or Jimmy Connors without the temper. Maybe more like a, a Pete Sampras. My game is similar to Andre Agassi. Those who follow tennis, the 200 backhand, the big forehand, very fit. I like to wear out my opponents, you know, take them side to side. And, and Tampa is a very hot area, very muggy, especially during spring break. And a lot of the schools that came down from the Midwest and Northeast were still used to the cool conditions playing indoors. So when they would come to Florida, they would melt away because I would just wear them out. You know, if they won the first set, I know how by the third set, they have no legs, they'll be cramping, and they have tough conditions. So I will use that as an, an advantage. But yeah, I definitely enjoyed playing a lot of tennis. But it shows how difficult it is to make it at that level because every country in the 90s had superstars. It's amazing. You know, the Russians had superstars and the Eastern Europeans had superstars. It shows how international the sport had gotten. And you look at today, even China, Japan, they all have big names. 
So it is a very competitive, tough sport. It's not like a team sport where you can check out, coach take me out for a little bit and give me a break, or they can get coaching. In tennis, you get none of that. You gotta figure it out, you get no subbing, and you gotta play through whatever you have. That's why I love the sport, and I really had a passion for it. So I graduated from college, and I played some tournaments. They're not big pro tournaments, but the small tournaments and it's, it's very difficult i mean their talent level is enormous out there i could have made it maybe a living in doubles because the top tier guys don't play doubles a lot so perhaps but i didn't want to play around the world maybe making a hundred thousand struggling and you're in the back courts where nobody watches it, it's rare that people really follow doubles it's more on the back courts and I really didn't want that. I wanted to play, obviously, like everybody does, dreams about it. I wrote a book about it. I think my, one of my first novels I wrote, Winning Wimbledon Against All Odds. It's about a guy named Louis Diaz, an American qualifier who overcomes all these obstacles and injuries to become the first qualifier period to win Wimbledon. It's fictitious, but it's very detailed. So if you like tennis, I think you're gonna like that novel. It's, it's pretty cool, but tennis is a brutal, tough sport. And even if you're talented, you'll see injuries can end careers very quickly. And people don't realize in sports that happens very quickly. It's dicey. So what I ended up doing, I had my bachelor's degree already from Stanley University in political science and history. I started working on my master's at FIU. I was back in South Florida, Miami, and I worked in international relations. And I applied for law school, accepted law school in Thomas Cooley in Lansing, Michigan. And now we're looking at around 1995. So I got accepted law school, but law school is expensive, very expensive, even in the mid 90s you're still looking at $30,000 a year, right? And I didn't, I didn't have a scholarship. That, I had Leo University out there in Pasco County, but then of course I, I worked a lot. So I decided to start looking at different options. And I noticed because at the time, Windows 95 came out and made it easier to go online and look for different federal positions in FedWorld. And that was a game changer too, by the way, having Windows 95 because they was able to go online, the internet, and a lot of people didn't know what the internet was. And I use it as a tool, and not just for employment, but to research. I taught myself how to use it by just going in there back then because that was, that was a huge thing. That's, of course, changed the world, no, no doubt about it. Changed my life, for sure. So I go online, and I see there's openings for custom officials in Miami, Spanish speaker, who have a background in Latin America. I said, man, that's perfect for me because obviously I grew up in South Florida. I know all different cultures. I study international relations and I have a lot of friends that were from South America, Central America, and Mexico, you know, being in Miami, natural. And I'm also a very good athlete. I'm a great tennis player. I run a lot. And my dad was also an avid shooter. Also, he would teach me at the local gun range and I would shoot also. So I think I can be good with this, with customs. And it seemed pretty cool. I said, I would love to get some big seizures, you know, cocaine. And especially at that time, you remember Miami Vice? You remember all the big loads? I said, man, this is pretty cool. I think I can do this. And you make a lot of money in overtime. I said, man, this is a pretty cool job. So I said, let me put in for this. So I put in for the job, I interview, I get it. And I start working at Miami International Airport. And you start with passenger processing where you're there and you start dealing with pastors coming in and I start getting good at it. And I start getting guys who are swallowing a lot of dope. These guys will have pounds of cocaine heroin from South America in their stomach, which is crazy. And then if they get by us, which a lot of them do, then they have a certain amount of time they got to pass it. If not, the guys who are waiting over there are not going to spend weeks waiting for them to pass it. They'll put a bullet in their head, gut them out and take the product, right? They're lucky if we catch them because a lot of these people, I hate to say it, they either are extorted, they're used, or they're peasants that they pay them a few thousand dollars to do this because they're desperate. That's the pattern you saw. Occasionally, we would see some Americans go down there and they will stand out. 
because you went to Cali, you went to Medellin, you didn't know anybody, and you went out there and you spent three days. That's a red flag. And they had swallowed the dope there too. And it's a process. When you catch them, you got to take them to the local hospital, Jackson Memorial Hospital. You got to give them the laxatives. You have the doctors monitoring them. And it takes a while to get all those out. A lot of these guys don't wait. Remember, this is the 90s where Medellin Cali Cartel was still flourishing and they would pump a lot of their drugs through Florida and the Caribbean, through boats, through the airport, and it wouldn't go through the border until years later. But the corruption I would see firsthand was enormous at the Miami International Airport because, you know, for you to get 800, 1,000 pounds, let's say, of fish from Guayaquil, Ecuador, they have these huge groupers. You have a block of ice next to a block of kilo coming in. That shipment was never going to make it to its final destination. That's getting ripped off by these dirty ramp workers out there. We'll find a seizure, and it'll be 850 pounds of cocaine. That's moving fast. They get that load in within like six hours and hopefully get it on the streets that quick. And when I went on the contraband enforcement team, we're making some of the biggest seizures with customs in the country at the time because Miami was the hottest thing going on. Obviously, it would change 10 years later. When the Cali and Escobar Medellin cartels collapsed, the Mexicans took over and their cartels and their syndicates and then they would push it through the border. And that's where you're seeing a lot, through the tunnels, through the land masses, and that's where a lot of it's coming in. So 80s was crazy, but 90s was also pretty crazy too. You had airline employees involved, you had it through the cargo, you name it, that was a time when they're coming in. And I would make a lot of seizures and a lot of contacts. And that would lead me to meet a lot of guys with either ATF, FBI, DEA, Secret Service. We would make seizures, not just in drugs, if it was outbound, something would seize a lot of money because when drugs come in, the money has to come out. The cartels want their money. So we will make huge seizures with currencies, with the drugs, a lot of weapons also going out. There was a lot of different things we would seize. So I would meet a lot of different agents from different agencies. And it's pretty interesting working cases here on the border at the airport where you don't need probable cause. Everybody's subject to search, especially the merchandise and cargo coming in the country. But you want to take it to a different level. You can make the bigger case, not just limit myself to the border. So I'm single. So I can't go and put in for these jobs. And I do. I put in for ATF agents. I met DEA agents, FBI. And ATF was the fastest to pick me up. And I was fortunate enough to stay in Florida, not in Miami, but my old stopping ground when I went to school up in Tampa, which was fine. I mean, some guys get sent to the southwest border. They get sent to like a big city or they get sent to maybe Anchorage, Alaska. I got a good gig. I thought, hey, not too far from where I grew up. I know the area. Let's go. When I went to the groups, I was fortunate enough the guys did a lot of undercover work. Sometimes you go to groups where the guys don't do it. Maybe you have a few guys that just want to do the SWAT or guys that just want to do investigations. It's a niche and you really have to work on it. It's not something you just walk into. You really have to have a mentor. And that's one thing I had. I was introduced to him to my group. Uh, he had come over from Puerto Rico and he was in the Tampa area. He was about 15, 16 years older than me. He was seasoned, he did a lot undercover, involving shootings. He was even involved in a shooting where he was shooting a SIG 9mm, the bad guy had a SIG 9mm, and the round entered his barrel. Very crazy. The, the miracle in Westland Mall in Hialeah, they called it, back in 87. He was a big karate guy and everything else, so I was fortunate enough, I worked a lot with him. I learned a lot from the street from him. So that was about like 2001, 2002, and I would work with him and then eventually develop and grow my own cases. I changed my persona. I, I spoke Spanish, I grew my hair out, I had a beard, and then you keep on growing and, and changing and, and you're working your cases. And what also helps is to have good informants. If you have good informants, they're golden. They can pretty much walk you into anywhere you want, any situation. They vouch for you, you're gold. If they go bad, 
they can also destroy your case too. And that's what I start doing. I start working and uh, I get good informants and I deal a lot with repeat violent offenders. I deal a lot with gang members, armed drug dealers, international firearms traffickers, domestic firearms traffickers, helped out with armed home invaders coming in to rip off cocaine stash houses. So that's what ATF does. It's the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. The E was added later. I started with customs with Treasury. ATF stayed with Treasury. But then after 9-11 in 2001, uh, ATF went to Department of Justice. So all of a sudden, we're in DOJ. And of course, that develops a little bit of a rivalry with the FBI, which is pretty interesting in my career. They're the big brother, and we're the annoying little brother to them in some ways. I mean, they're an enormous agency, and we only have about 2,500 agents. And I think employees have over 10,000 at least in counting. So we do more with less than some other agencies because you have to. And that's one thing I did because I was not just the undercover. Some people, that's all they do is the undercover work and they hand in the report to a case agent who then has to write it up or whatever. That wasn't the case because we don't have that kind of manpower. I would change hats. So when I get back to the office, I go from doing the open gun buys and meeting with the bad guys, but then I have to write the reports. I'm also the case agent. I have to do the operational plans. I got to plan what's my next step in the investigation. If I'm going to do search warrants, I'm going to write affidavits. Are we going to do pen registers? Are we going to go up on a T3, go up on their phones? Top of that, also the bulk custodian. We're handling everybody's property in the group. So you got to be able good at multitasking. I kind of saw that I could be good at that. So when I was with Customs and obviously I got picked up with ATF, you gradually spend the first year studying, working ground ball cases. You get guys with guns at the beginning and you start understanding how to work with the United States Attorney's Office, the prosecutor. Because like anything else, you first got to learn how to walk quick and run because the cases get really enormous, really complex. And it's like anything else, you got to start small. And once you understand how small cases work, you can start with medium cases. And then you can start saying, you know what? I think I can start doing this. Some guys decide, hey, I want to be a SWAT guy. I had SWAT training, but I really enjoyed the art of the undercover where you study your subject and you're fooling them these guys who are career criminals who grew up in the street, that's all they know. And you're telling them, I'm a guy who's trafficking guns for this organization. These guys are going down south. And by the way, I'm also buying whatever dope you have, cocaine or heroin, but I'm also using it over here. It won't be competition for you. I'm trying to say my English is broken. I don't speak like this. I want him to understand that I've been from Cuba for about 10 years. And this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm going to make some money. And once they see that, they're pretty much confident with it. I remember I started working in near north of Ybor City in Tampa. But north of Ybor City, there was a lot of violence. Guys selling dope and guns. And I dealt with a guy, I guess he was a football player from University of Miami, dropped out freshman year, and now he's a career criminal. He has prior drug convictions, gun violence, aggravated assaults, you name it. Had a good CI. He's saying he's looking for guns in the hood. And he said, this guy can hook you up. So we start talking. And he pays me with crack cocaine with exchange for some guns we have for props and we do buy bus. So I had to have a few meetings. You have informants who are actively out there, they make it easier for you to meet all these guys. It's difficult to be out there when you have everything else going on, but they do meet them and then you can confirm everything they're saying. So I remember that and, and that was interesting enough. And you start with the basic cases. That's like a real basic case. And then they get bigger and bigger and bigger the DC sniper case, that was a case I was a part of also. Right after 9-11, a year later, I was only a year on the job. Three weeks in October 2001. It was insane. Six people killed in 15 hours. When we went up here, the whole area in the DC area, you know, Maryland, Virginia, 
DC itself, it was like people were panicking because they were randomly killing. You know, calls from all over the world have poured into the Montgomery County Police Department. People wondering if their loved ones are victims. You just heard from Chief Charles Moose. The notification of families has just been completed. Names are now being released. I never said anything like it. I was like 30, whatever, and 31. And, and I don't blame them because no one knew what was going on. Traffic will be shut down once there's a shooting. The media will have huge amounts of coverage on this, right? After every shooting, it will get bigger and bigger this mysterious shooters out here how many are there what's going on paranoia has set in this area people were panicking and what we were doing out there yeah we were doing surveillance out there we were trying to set up the, the pay phones of recent shootings see if we can spot out what's going on me personally since they were leaving recorded phone calls to the chief since i was from miami and i was there at the richmond office with the fbi for a briefing they knew i was from south florida said, you familiar with accents i said i am and they said can you listen to this so you think and i was able to pick up a Jamaican accent from Malvo. And I, I will find out, you know, obviously weeks later that his family was from Jamaica. So all those little pieces help to piece this together. And those who don't know who John Muhammad and Lee Malvo were, they were a duo that started a shooting spree that started in Tacoma, Washington, and worked its way through the country, through Phoenix, to Louisiana, Alabama, Florida, and they convert their 1997 Caprice into a sniper's nest. Where they have a hole in the back and they put the muzzle of their 223 Bushmaster with optics on there where Muhammad is driving and Mabo, who is 17 at the time, he's a minor, and Muhammad, he's about, he's like a father figure to the guy in his 40s and he manipulates this kid into becoming an assassin, a killer. And he, he met him up there in the Caribbean island and he's of Jamaican descent, Mabo, and Muhammad, who was prior military, he was a National Guard from Louisiana. So he has weapons training. He trains him how to become this killer and it brings him over from small Caribbean island. And he meets him there. His mom's pretty much abandoned him. And he takes him in, but just to use him because he's very angry at society. They're both obviously black males, but he's very angry at living in America, angry at the culture, angry at his ex-wife because she takes his kids away from him. He's just a lot of issues and they plan this to get back at society. They didn't call it a domestic terrorist attack, that's what it was. It was an attack. At gas stations, they're getting them at store parking lots. They're getting them at golf courses. I mean, they would kill people randomly all over the country. It would be later that we piece it together. These guys had done all these killings. I think it was, the number was over like 20-something. It's in my book, the exact number. But 20-something killed. Muhammad would be executed in 2009. Mabo would get life because he was underage. Supreme Court said he couldn't be executed. So Muhammad would be executed for, for these murder conspiracies. And uh, we were up there in these areas because they were making phone calls to, I don't remember Chief Moose. He was a chief out of Montgomery County and Maryland. He just recently passed away, by the way. And pretty much taunting them using codes. They'll leave tarot cards behind. The profilers thought they were maybe like a Timothy McVeigh type. You know, we're looking for a white box truck and we were looking different leads until it came out from one of the scenes, the print matched to Mabel in Tacoma for arrest. And then it matched another scene in the Montgomery, Alabama, where they robbed a, a store clerk. They shot him, they didn't kill him, and it matched there too. And then they were a piece Mabo to Muhammad because they were very close. So that's how those leads started coming. And that was weeks into it. And eventually they got arrested at the end of October at a rest stop in Maryland off I-70. Once the information came out and they were sleeping at a rest stop where you couldn't sleep, it was like around midnight or so, trooper stopped to see what's going on and realized something's wrong here. And I wrote a book about it, the uh, DC snipers, you know, there's a lot of information out there, a lot of video, and 
it is really something that to happen in it's three scary weeks in october that's for sure got married in 2006 i would meet her in 2003 she was working at the time at fble Florida Department of Law Enforcement in Tampa. She would be there working property room, pretty much taking in evidence where we would work a lot with our guns, either ballistics or prints, what have you. And she was new to the area from Orlando. And I had been in Tampa now back for about a year and a half or so. So I met her at the desk there at FDLE and I saw her and she had a really nice smile. And, and that caught my attention. She seemed very helpful, very nice. So we started talking. Her family is also Spanish, but Puerto Rican. In my obviously Spanish but Cuban we had that connection there she was new to the area and she said oh, I would love to be able to see like Ebor City at the time it started popping up but it's getting really popular and I said oh, I can be more happy sure and I was in law enforcement so she liked that and she liked that you know I worked these cases with guns and everything else so I gave her my business card and I said call me she did she called me and we started talking and then we started going out and you know really having a good time and we hit it off but I had proposed to her in Venice that year in February. I proposed her during carnival where everybody's in their different costumes, masks, and the Venetian fog, that is something to behold. And I really liked Italy. I had been to Rome and the Colosseum, but Venice to us would be always a special place. I proposed to her right off the Rialto Bridge, which was very, very nice, very touching. And it was cold, but it was romantic, it was special. It was Venice at a special time in carnival, and I definitely recommend people going out there and having that amazing experience. We got married actually at St. Louis University, my alma mater, at the Abbey, which is a beautiful abbey that's been around since the 1880s. Very historical, my campus, beautiful, beautiful family wedding, the whole nine yards. Lake Jovitas, next time we had our reception there. And then we come back from our honeymoon from Spain, we go to the Canary Islands in Madrid, we spent two weeks out there. That's a great time. Come back from a honeymoon, unbelievable. New wife, everything's great. Cases are good. But my dad seems like something's wrong. My dad's having some health issues. He's having some severe lower back pains. Again, I mentioned a little bit he was in the Navy back in the early 60s. He was an engineer, very fit man, passion for cycling. That was his thing. Every year he watched a Tour de France. He would watch the cyclist Greg LeMond. He would cycle every weekend, even on lunch period sometimes. He had a chance to bring his bike with him and he'll go cycling on his lunch period. That's a big, avid cyclist he was, very fit guy. He was in his mid-60s, but extremely fit. Didn't really drink, didn't really smoke. A healthy man. So he was having back issues. He said, man, what's going on? You know, he skipped a couple of years going to the doctor. Eventually, he gets so much pain. He goes there and he gets diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. And his situation deteriorated pretty fast. So he went from a very healthy man to pretty much somebody who was skin and bones. Very bad. He really, really deteriorated immensely in front of us and in front of the family. So you go from an amazing situation and a hellish situation. Because I'm in Tampa, going back and forth, helping my mother, seeing how it's impacting her, my sister, and my wife, of course. So I'm a newlywed, and then you got your workload on top of that. That was some of the hardest years. My father would pass away in October of that year, in 2007. A man who worked his whole life, and never had a chance to enjoy retirement. Died at 66 years of age. It's a horrific way to die. You know, Charles Dickens, as he said in his book, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. 
my first daughter, she was born in July 2008 in Tampa. And then my second one, we born in 2011. I would start getting better and better at the undercover, grow my hair and everything else. And this was already about five or six years in doing more undercover. And I do remember a case that was really gratifying. And this guy, it's a Cuban guy. I have his name in the book that I wrote ATF Undercover. I call him Chino. That was his nickname that he knew. And he, 30 years earlier, in 1980, was involved in a shootout in a pursuit with the city of Miami. They're in a pursuit, they're chasing him, and him and his partner, and he's driving, and the guy's in the passenger side, and the police officer behind him, he slams the brakes, they slam their brakes, but the doors open up and they fall out of the vehicle. This is city of Miami. He positions the vehicle where the passenger can open up on him. Fortunate enough, he misses him, doesn't kill him, and they continue and chase him down and catch him. He gets convicted for attempted murder on Leo, conspiracy for attempted murder on Leo, and gets about 30 years. Should've got life, should've got more time for that, but he didn't. Fast forward 2011, and I'm working a case, this is in Pasco County, working a lot undercover. I get a call from the guy I've been buying dope and guns from, and he said, hey man, we just got like 16 guns here. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, well, who's this? I'm with my partner here, he wants to talk to you. He's a Cuban guy, I can tell by his accent, he said, hey, man, I said, what do you guys got, man? I said, yeah, I said, these guns are hot. They're really stolen. We just stole them. He said, oh, really? They're, they're caliente, very hot. And I said, what do you got? He tells me the calibers. They have to make the models. And I have all this recorded. And I was like, wow. You know, they're reaching out to me. They just did this. You know, there's two different worlds. Their world and my world is I'm in law enforcement. And I got to go through all the logistics that come with some of that. So you always have to buy that time in. I'm always traveling. I'm always doing something. I just can't go in a moment's notice because it doesn't work that way. If it's a Sunday night, like they call me, there's no way I can get that done. Get a group out there and stuff like that. It doesn't really work that way. Okay, by a few days, I negotiate the price. And at the time I had an undercover apartment. I had it fully wired where we had video and audio. Great for evidence because you want to present the best case for the jury. You want to make it like a movie. So when they see it, they see these guys coming in with these guns, hear the conversation. I want them to feel good when they deliberate and they make the decision beyond a reasonable doubt. These guys are guilty if we get there. Hopefully we don't get there and they plea out. That's even better because trials are lengthy and you never know what kind of jury you get, you know, or a judge. You have also activist judges too who may rule against you, what have you. So I always want to make it easier for the United States Attorney's Office, the prosecutor, to have a slam dunk case, their term they like to use, where you have leverage to use with the defense attorney to get a deal. That was my specialty. That's what I like doing, presenting the best evidence. So that's why I enjoyed working undercover because I didn't want to use someone else. I didn't want to just have the informant do it. I wanted to be introduced because sometimes you don't know what the informant is doing with you and after hours. But when I'm doing the case, they get a clean jacket. I dealt with the bad guys. You know what's going on. I know the elements of the laws. I know what entrapment is. These guys are reaching out to me. These guys are actively doing these things. So these guys are violating federal law here. And this is what happened. So they meet me a few days later. They both come in two different cars. There's two of them, Chino and the other guy. And they have a dresser in the back of the trucks. And I'm like, man, where are the guns? They go, oh, it's in the dresser. I said, really? You got all 16 weapons in there. I said, okay. They get back on a little dolly. They put the dresser in the dolly, heavy. It takes two of the guys. And Chino's a big guy. I would describe him as about six feet over 240 pounds. A guy that's been around. Bad history, violent crimes, attempted murder in Leos, non-Leos also attempted murder, robberies in Hillsborough County, 
in Tampa. And the guy spent a lot of time robbing also in Tampa. They put the dress on the dolly, they bring it inside. And I noticed that they had sealed the tops. So they bring their own tools to unseal the top of the dresser. And I said, well, why'd you do it like this? And I said, oh, in case we get stopped by the police, you know, they wouldn't be able to open it and they wouldn't think anything of it. And I'm, of course, recording all this. And it's interesting that they're saying all that stuff too. I said, okay, well, here it is. And the cover team can hear me. I have a cover team of audio, video, and all these guys are, you know, they're felons. Nestor Blanco, he's a career criminal. So every time he possesses that gun, he's looking at 15 years. So he's taking the guns out. They're showing to me. We have the rifles, we have handguns, ammunition. They take it all out. They lay it out there on the apartment floor. Beautiful pictures right there. These guys did it. I pay half to one, half to the other one. They're getting paid. They take the dresser back into their car, leave it there, and they come out. And I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if this guy's going to talk about the shooting in Miami and see what he says. Because based on the description, I was able to identify him ahead of time with the detectives when they said, well, who is this guy? I said, oh, he sounds like he's a guy maybe in his 50s, Cuban guy, and he hangs out with this guy. And I said, oh, guy, show me a picture of him. And that's why I knew this guy's criminal history. I was like, okay. And bingo, when I met him, that was the guy. So the first thing he does, he comes in. He starts saying, oh, yeah, I can also get you some AK-47s. I get you other weapons you have. And I said, how'd you get this? They had a window company. They could tell when a house was empty and be pretending to work on the property, go inside, clean them out, steal the guns, steal the jewelry, everything else, and then sell it. And that's what they had done. And they had done it to a prominent member of the community out there in Date City, Florida, who worked with the sheriff's office on their horses and other animals. They didn't care. These guys will steal and, and, and they didn't care. So I said, okay, good to know. And then he said, you know, I'm originally from Key West and he had lived in Tampa. And he said he was in a shootout with the police. The police couldn't kill me. They shot at me. I shot at them. I got 25 years, he said. And I've been out and I'm back out here. I like it better in Pasco. It's a lot cooler, a lot easier. Tranquilo is what he said. And I said, oh, okay, keep on talking. Keep on talking. He just mentioned everything he's done, what it's about, and how he did it, right? <laughs> and the other guys there, yeah, co-conspirator. So a few weeks later, we ended up arresting him and the other guy. And based on his criminal history, he almost killed two cops in the city of Miami. He ends up being convicted and receives 30 years. 30 years. And he had to do state time first, and he's already in mid-50s. So it's pretty much ends up being a life sentence for this guy. Very satisfying, gratifying to see someone like that off the street. At this time, I was already married. I already had my first and second child. So I have family. I want to make sure there's a lot of distance to where I did undercover to where I live. That's how I kept my buffer. I live, let's say, in South Hillsboro, the Apollo Beach. That's where I lived. Beautiful area. I loved it on the water. We lived in an area which was very nice. I can't complain. And it's a whole different world. And I would go up in North and Pasco County, very far. No way these worlds would collide. Undercover, yeah. I mean, it just being in law enforcement is dangerous. Undercover works dangerous, SWAT. We also did a lot of entries too. That's as dangerous as anything else undercover where you're going to hit this house where it could be a lot of guys with guns behind it. So it happens too. It's just the nature. She made me in law enforcement and then the work itself is dangerous. I chose to do undercover work. Undercover is very dangerous. You're right there with them. You're right there with them, but I was good enough to convince them that they can make a lot of money with me and they want to treat me as their best friend. And that's where you got to convince them that there is a lot being made here and you deal with the right target. So I grew my hair out. I had a beard, spoke Spanish, and I had good informants. And uh, we were able to do the case with Chino. 
But then there, there's issues where you have to have good common sense. Say I'm back in uh, Zephyr Hills, that's near Dade City. You're in these trailers. I had another informant make an introduction. I'm dealing with this other guy who is a good drug dealer. He's not Hispanic, white. And he's talking to me how many kilos he's moved and he has these contacts. And he's taking me to these trailers where there are a lot of uh, Hispanics, Mexicans, where I can get some guns. I'm, I'm looking to do a deal for an AK-47 with a 75-round drum, a couple Glocks, and some crystal meth, a little less than an ounce of crystal meth. So we're in the shade trailer. I met one of the guys. He goes in the back. He wants to make sure I'm okay. And the deal is supposed to be at least about like $3,000 for all the stuff I'm looking for. And he says, the guys are in the trailer, but I can see around that there's people still coming in through the other side. But he doesn't know I can see that. So my instincts tells me, if I go in there and with the money, I think it's going to be a rip or they're going to do something to me. I said, no, I think I'm going to stay in the car. And he said, oh, give me the money and I'll get it. I said, no, I'm not doing that either. I, I front my money, that money's going to disappear. <laughs> and then I have more headaches to deal with. I said, I'm not doing that. I said, you got five minutes. You told me this stuff was already here. I'm going to wait in the car. And if not, I'm out. And five minutes later, minivan shows up. Odyssey shows up with a guy that has an AK-47 with a drum. And he sells it to me. I gave him the cash. And uh, the other Glocks he had in his backpack. So that tells me there's something going to go on there, which was like, mm-mm. And then it gives me the crystal meth, too. And I said, hey, dude, next time, I don't want to meet anybody else. We're going to do the deal. You have it already set up, and I'm done. And he understood that. And uh, I would do more deals with him, and uh, he would end up getting 20 years fed time. So he was another good target. Made a drug trafficker, under, and, and connect that. So, you, you know, just there alone, I took off this AK-47, which is in the bad hands, a couple Glock pistols, and these guys are all doing crystal meth, which is extremely addicting. Extremely addicting drug. So, you know, th those kind of cases happen all the time. You get good at it. You develop good instincts because if you don't, you won't be doing it much. That's for sure. Never liked any of these guys because they're poisoning people. They're making them addicts so they can make money. They're ruining people's lives. I really never can fathom how someone could sell drugs and destroy someone's life. If they're a friend, they'll say, they make them an addict so they can make money off them. And, and they know they're destroying their families. I, I just can never really like people like that. So I never found them, you know, any, any sort of appealing at all. The one that I felt sorry for would be if I had informants, which you get to develop a relationship with because they're risking their life too with you. The ones I feel bad for is the ones, you know, let's say they're cooperating, we work together, and they make stupid mistakes. And all of a sudden, they get locked up. I say, well, you, you made a mistake now. You, you were okay then, but now you're going to have to work it off. And and that's that's how things work. Those are tough sometimes. Because they're, they're with you. But you have to know where the line is. If, if you don't know where the line is, then it gets blurred. And you have to know you're a professional. And these guys are doing bad things. At the end, they're going to end up going to jail. Incarcerated. They've done bad things. And you know they're going to have their chance later to cooperate if they want. But for now, they're going to have to go through the system. And it's a job I'm doing. That's what I did. And I did it a lot. I did it for years. Like I said, started in 2004. It went all the way until 2018 doing a lot of UC work. I went from Tampa, I went to South Florida, Miami. We moved uh, in 2012. And then I promoted and I went to ATF headquarters. And I was a program manager and I was working in the central division where Indiana's in, and, you know, all the way from St. Paul all the way to New Orleans with the number one in command, helping them with the high risk cases. You know, something that came out of post Fast and Furious, 
was that Office OIG recommended that ATF monitor better high-risk investigations, especially five trafficking international, high-risk cases domestically, and other cases. So I was monitoring high-risk cases in headquarters in the central division with the number one in command for the region. So that, I thought that was pretty cool because I saw it from behind. I became really good at that. And you also part of the briefings with the director. That's pretty fascinating. So I go from the street level to all the way headquarters in D.C. and I'm seeing how things work at the highest level. I retired and I was eligible 26 years of federal law enforcement because again, my father's situation. I want to be able to enjoy and do things, and and that's been part of how I got into writing. That led to me being a writer, published author. I had talked to family members who were in the publishing business. I'm not here to promote anything, but she said. Kindle, Amazon. You can you can self-publish because it's so hard to get publishers. So when I start writing, I cut out the middleman. I do directly with them, and I keep a lot more of it. And I also do it digitally, which is also good for the environment too. Green on both ends. Fifty-six books and counting. And I started politically. I started writing books on communist China because I wasn't happy that they were hosting again another games, Olympic games, but this time it was the Winter Games. So I wrote a book about that. I wrote a book about Fast and Furious, what happened afterwards. My role was in headquarters, what we saw, and a little history about that. And then I started doing some of the travel books because I traveled so much that summer. I did some kids' books with my daughter. She wanted to write some books with me. I thought it was really cool, self-publishing. So I did some of that, also bonding with her. And she's young, so we did it with、uh, ballerinas and dancers. We did you know snow days and everything else. People like those books also. I did books on true crime, and I started doing organized crime. I started doing the mafia, the one percenters, right? The bikers, the violent biker gangs. I started doing other groups, prison gangs.、Uh, you name it, all the different groups, and、I、also did more politics, and I also did really bad people that were in politics too. You know, you do Gaddafi. I did a book on Gaddafi, Kim Jong Un, Xi Jinping, and I just kept on writing and writing and writing. I just been recently doing La Emma, the Mexican Mafia, MS13. Yeah, listen, all my books are ten bucks. I mean, the most expensive one is my autobiography. So I said, if you're a Kindle Unlimited subscriber, all my books are free, which which is pretty cool. And a lot of times I do have free promos every weekend. So I try to give a book out there. I want people to read the stuff, and they're short reads, they're not long reads, but they're informative reads. And I do research them a lot, and that's why people like the books. A lot of people don't have time to read long books, but they do enjoy good information. And, and I think this is interesting because it's also from an insider who who was there. Bill, I I, I enjoyed this a lot, man. This was awesome. It was, it was a great experience here, man. It's it's a、uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Awesome, Bill. All right, man. Thank you, brother.